Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Good evening from London. I want to welcome everyone to the LSE's online events platform. My name is Peter Trubowitz. I'm a professor in the International Relations Department and the director of the Phelan United States Center at the LSE, which is hosting tonight's event. We meet at an ominous moment, the unfolding crisis in the Ukraine, the risk of a full-blown Russian invasion, the likes of which uh, we've not seen since World War II, threatened to rewrite the understandings and indeed the very boundaries that have defined European security for the past three decades. While Vladimir Putin and the Ukrainians are center stage, much of the world is also watching Joe Biden taking his measure and wondering just how far the United States will go in imposing punishing sanctions on Putin's Russia and how long Germany, France, Britain, and others will hold the line. When Joe Biden took office a little over a year ago, he pledged that America is back. After four years of Donald Trump's America first, the message was blunt. Biden's watch as president, Washington would redouble its commitment to the liberal rules order that America did so much to build. Since then, many of America's allies have questioned just how deep that commitment really is and just how much Biden, and for that matter, Washington, actually speaks for Americans at a time when the country is deeply divided over its purposes. In short, there's a lot to discuss tonight. Fortunately, we have a crackerjack panel of experts on the LSE platform this evening to help us make sense of the moment we find ourselves in and what it might mean for Europe, America, and the future of the liberal international order. In alphabetical order, they include Catherine Kluver Ashbrook, a non-resident fellow at the Global Public Policy Institute, former director and CEO of the German Council on Foreign Relations, and last but not least, an LSE alumna. Welcome home, Catherine. Charles Kupchin, who is professor of international affairs at Georgetown University and a senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. Gideon Rackman, the chief foreign affairs commentator at the Financial Times and the author of the forthcoming and timely The Age of the Strongman. And Leslie Vingemori, a reader in international relations at SOAS and director of the US and the Americas program at Chatham House. She's also an LSE alumna, but who's keeping track? Well, welcome to all of you. It's great to have you on, on LSE's platform. I can assure you we've got a lot of folks watching tonight uh, on the platform here with great interest. Um, before we get down to business, let me just say a few words about the format for everybody in the audience. To get us started, I've asked each of the panelists to take five minutes to share some initial reflections on Biden's foreign policy, the moment we find ourselves in. Needless to say, when we set this panel up six months ago, we didn't think we'd be on the brink of major war in Europe um, and a war that would, among other things, be testing American and NATO resolve. But here we are, and here we go. So we'll be going in the following order. Charles Kupchan will get us started. He'll be followed by Catherine Kluver Ashbrook, then Gideon Rackman, and Leslie Vingemori will round things out. There's going to be plenty of time for audience questions. 
So please put your questions to us via the Q&A function on Zoom. Be sure to include your name and affiliation so I can mention that when I put your question to the panelists. Now, normally at this point, I would ask all of you in the audience to put your hands together to give our panelists one of those warm LSE welcomes that we're famous for. That's not possible tonight. We're getting closer and closer to that point. But so in lieu of applause, I encourage you to pose questions to the panelists. And with that, let me turn to our first speaker, uh, Charles Kupchan. Charlie, great to have you here tonight. Um, so where do we start? Moscow, Kiev, Washington. Let's start in Washington where you are, you're zooming in from. So you've worked in the White House, you know Biden, you know the top members of his foreign policy team. Give us a read on how, on how Biden and his team are sizing up the situation. I mean, the Ukraine is dominating the headlines, but it of course is only one of multiple challenges that the administration faces. So can you widen the lens a bit for us while also interpreting Putin's latest moves in, in, in the Donbass? Very good to be with you, Peter. You have excellent timing, uh, given that uh, our friend Vladimir has just uh, recognized as independent Donetsk and Luhansk. And it's, it's great to see Leslie and, and Gideon and, and Catherine. I'm, I'm honored to, to, to join them in this discussion. You know, uh, in the spirit of trying to keep us from going down the, the rabbit hole of Donbass and Crimea and Ukraine, I'm gonna, I'm gonna try to make some broader comments about Biden's foreign policy. And then at the end of my remarks, I will, I'll circle back to, to Ukraine. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna say three things that, that give me great hope about the Biden administration and then make three comments that uh, keep me up at night. The, the three great assets of the Biden presidency when it comes to foreign policy in my mind are number one, that we have a, a decent liberal Democrat in the Oval Office. Uh, and that should not be underestimated after four years of Trump. And I think that you know the United States has over the course of its history bent the arc of of, of history in the right direction. And one of the things that most troubled me about the Trump era is, is we were not playing that role. And uh, I think it, it is critical at this moment in time to have a president of, of the United States that is committed to rules-based order, that is committed to civility, that is committed to decency. Uh, and you know, I think one of the takeaways that I have from the from the, the the Trump era is the United States still is the key player when it comes to anchoring a liberal core of of countries to anchor the international system. Second, he's come back to be uh, to he's he's a team player. He deeply believes in multilateralism, whether it's the Paris Agreement, whether it's the Iran nuclear deal, whether it's standing by allies in Asia and Europe, this is a, a presidency that is committed to multilateralism. And that to me is essential at a moment in history in which the world is more globalized and interdependent than it's ever been. 
and in which the key challenges of our time will not be resolved without international teamwork. Third point, I think he's done a pretty good job of shifting priorities, of getting climate and cyber and global health more front and center in America's agenda. And that's not easy to do at a time when the traditional geopolitical uh, um, uh, threats are, are front and center, including Russia and, and China. But we have considerable change going on institutionally. The State Department opening, opening up a new bureau focusing on cyber, a new deputy national security uh, official who is focused on, on cyber, real leaning into the, the climate issue. So there has been, I think, an updating of America's institutional infrastructure to meet the challenges of the time. Let me now segue to the three things that, that, that trouble me. One, and you and I have written about this, Peter, the relationship between domestic politics and foreign affairs. You know, uh, as someone who has lived in the United States, uh, and I guess Catherine did too through the, through the Trump era, it was hell. It was scary. It was a nightmare. Uh, and I think that, you know, that, tr that, that Biden understands that and he is committed, as he put it as a candidate, to reclaim the soul of the United States. But it is one tough uphill battle, especially when the margins in Congress are so slim. And I do think that he is trying to get into the American bloodstream, the significant investments in infrastructure, childcare, healthcare, R&D, to try to rebuild America's political center, to try to get working Americans back up on their feet and be optimistic about the future. That to me is the key challenge moving forward. But he he's having difficulties because it's not just the Republicans that are the problem, it is ideological division within the Democratic camp itself. In some ways, Manchin and Cinema have tripped him up as much as, as the Republicans when it comes to, to build back better. Uh, I'm hoping that we will see in the next few months an effort to take critical elements of build back better, get them through the Congress, but let's keep in mind that the November midterms are fast looming and that it's important to get more investment into the American bloodstream. Second, I am in generally supportive of, of Biden's decision to withdraw from Afghanistan, to engage in a global retrenchment from what one could call the strategic periphery to focus on meat and potatoes issues in the Eurasian heartland. That having been said, I do think that more needs to be done to deal with the consequences of that retrenchment. I'm, I'm worried, for example, that the French have just announced that they're leaving Mali at the same time that the United States is, with, is sort of reducing its footprint in the Middle East, and I'm, I'm guessing behind the scenes in Africa. What does that mean? Uh, for stability in these regions. And most pointedly, I'm deeply concerned about Afghanistan. 
support Biden's decision to get out. Yes, it was ugly, but it seems to me that we cannot solve the problem in Afghanistan just with humanitarian assistance. The country is descending toward collapse and humanitarian nightmare. And I think it, it behooves the US and its partners to unleash the frozen reserves to begin to try to get the Afghan economy up and running to circumvent the Taliban, but to get money to the central bank, to pay salaries, to get teachers, electricity workers, doctors back up uh, uh, on their feet. My final point, Peter, and this will bring me to, to Ukraine. I sometimes uh, feel that that the administration is dealing with the world that it wants to see rather than the world that we have, rather than the world that it is. Uh, yes, I am supportive of the idea of building a united front of democracies to stand up to Russia, to stand up to China, to push back against the autocrats of the day but I also think that we need to have more of a proactive agenda to deal with climate, with nuclear proliferation, with pandemics. Uh, and so, uh, uh, you know, for me, it, the, you know, the, the rise of China is changing the world. Two thirds of the globe trades more with China than with the United States. Uh, and so I, I, I need to hear more about how, how are we adapting the system of global governance to deal with a world in which China will soon have the largest economy in the world? Yeah, okay, I get, let's double down on the liberal order, but it's not enough. Mm -hmm. And in some ways, the critical challenge of our time is working across ideological dividing lines, not creating more division across ideological dividing lines. Finally, and this brings me to Ukraine, you know, uh, Putin last in the last 24 hours has recognized Donetsk and Luhansk. He seems to be upping the ante. I'm guessing that this is not mission accomplished. I'm done. I've taken Ukraine, I've taken Crimea and I've taken a chunk of Donbass and now I can go home. I think he sees Ukraine as a country that needs to be in Russia's sphere of influence. And so we could see more coming. I think Biden has more or less gotten it right. On the one hand, you engage in dogged diplomacy. On the other hand, you put in the window very significant sanctions, the reinforcement of NATO's eastern frontier, arming a potential Ukrainian insurgency. But I do think that once again, there is a little bit of ideological overreach here when it comes to the enlargement of NATO. And going back to the early 1990s, and that's when I think this conflict over Ukraine began, the Russians have objected to the continuing enlargement of the NATO alliance. I think it's, it, it, the United States has too easily dismissed Russian objections. And so I do think that if there is a window of opportunity, some common ground that can be struck, it is on this particular question of Ukraine's pathway to NATO membership. 
It's not under consideration now. It's not under consideration anytime soon. I'm hoping that that reality would provide some trade space with Russia, mm -hmm. some way of finding a path toward de-escalation. Because if not, then in some ways, the lofty ambitions of the United States will come to naught and we will see Ukraine invaded and occupied by Russia. And that in many respects will put us on the path to a new Cold War, not just with Russia, but potentially with a combined and, and, and potent coalition of Russia and China. I will stop there. Well, Charlie, you put a lot on the on the table here. Um, I, I want to circle back at some point. I'm sure there's going to be a ton of questions from the audience picking up on things that you've raised. We'll want to circle back to, I think, at some point, um, the possibilities for, um, you know, some kind of um, diplomatic bargain, some kind of deal um, somewhere in that space that you just talked about. Um, with respect to um, to the Ukraine and and uh, its connection um, to to NATO, um, Catherine, wonderful to have you on the platform tonight. So you're coming to us from Berlin. Um, Berlin certainly made, I think, a striking statement um, today by halting the Nord Stream two certification um, and. Um, one gets the sense I have as I've kind of followed this that um, the Chancellor Schultz has been working very closely with President Biden, that the two teams are working very closely. And frankly, that in and of itself is pretty stunning. I mean, when you just, when you remember how shambolic US-German relations were just a few years ago, um, you know, uh, during the Trump years. You've got your finger on the pulse in Berlin. How does Biden look from there? And what concerns about the U.S. remain? Are they the same ones that Charlie just raised? Or are there a different set of concerns that, you know, play themselves out on the continent? Well, I think uh, Charlie's indeed put a lot on the table. And Peter, thank you for setting it up in that way. I'm sure we'll circle back to the Nord Stream 2 issue because I do think it's important to underline that what has been stopped is the certification process and not the pipeline per se. So there's a little bit of wiggle room there. And we'll talk about the intentions and the different components of how this coalition government first uh, in really historic in this composition, of course, with these three parties. And we've seen, um, just to reflect on German politics for just a half a second, how that interesting layer cake of having to negotiate with inside a coalition has played out uh, in the transatlantic relationship and in what is diplomatically possible vis-a-vis uh, -vis the Ukraine situation. So, so I'm sure we'll get into that in just a moment. But Peter, you're absolutely right to point out um, that for the Germans and for a lot of continental Europe, this has been an absolute roller coaster ride with the United States uh, over the last now five, five and a half years. And uh, that's influenced the way that the Germans 
Germans have perceived and read Biden messaging from the moment it came back in, uh, which is to say that the America is back uh, message was sort of met with skepticism that's non-traditional for the strong uh, relationship. I, I would almost say, of course, a genetic relationship, I think, between the Germans and the United States. And you saw some of that, of course, play out in the symbolic politics of the Merkel visit uh, over the summer. But of course, if you think about the origin of modern Germany, its constitution, its federalism, so much of that is modeled on the uh, American system. And I think that's why, and Charlie alluded to that, because uh, we've had a number of conversations about it. I think the Germans took the Trump presidency, and of course, Trump made it that way with Angela Merkel sort of at the center of his bullseye. Hope you can still hear me. It says my connection to be the, uh, the enemy, the enemy on the continent. And that made it really difficult for the Germans uh, internally. And what you saw then over those schizophrenic years was two things. A, that the Germans reposition themselves as the perceived um, sort of nurturer and like life ring, life preserver of the multilateral uh, architecture and wanted credit for it when the Biden administration came in uh, together with France. They very much wanted to have the Americans have the humble pie and, and see what Europe had done. Europe could achieve in the absence uh, of the United States on the climate change agenda, uh, on the institutional architecture piece, even on tech standards and tech regulations, they wanted credit for it. Um, and Jake Sullivan said to me very much at the beginning of the relationship, oh, oh we'll, we'll make sure that that credit is given. So I think the continental Europeans went into this relationship thinking, ah, we're going to have a much more clear-eyed uh, relationship with the United States, and, and this will be much more balanced, in part, of course, because of the rise of China. And there was a, a, an odd other component um, that happened in, in the German assessment of the situation is that there were certain parts of the um, German uh, political elite that began to really cozy up with this idea of having to play this balancing architecture that equidistance between the United States and China was possible. There was a I think we were all shocked by a public opinion survey that the Kaba Stiftung did two summers ago that showed really 35% thought the relationship to the United States was critically important and 36% of the Germans thought that the relationship to China was going to be much more important for the future of Germany at the middle power uh, at the heart of Europe. And so those are some odd developments that were in the water when America is back was read with a typical uh, sort of idea of American hubris. Um, and pretty quickly, we realized, even though, of course, Germany was suddenly the best friend, and we heard from Anthony Blinken from the stage of the Munich Security Conference, where I was over the weekend again, that Germany was the partner first resort. And yet we saw then for the Germans, at least, the idea that the, the, the hegemonic muscle uh, can't be taken out of the American nature of looking into the world uh, as quickly as one might assume. That in fact, this perceived idea of we're much more equal in the way that we approach the transatlantic relationship wasn't true anymore because Afghanistan was so painfully uh, felt, I think, by by the Germans as, as, as well to say, you know, again, when the Americans say jump, then the only response that we as Europeans can can give is to say how high and even in sort of an empathetic way with the French when it came to the AUKUS piece. So the political elite felt um, sort of renewed in their skepticism. 
the economic elite, and I think this is also worth pointing out because um, they didn't get what they wanted immediately out of the Biden administration either, because what do they want? They wanted the steel and aluminum tariffs to come off. They wanted Airbus and Boeing to actually move in a specific direction. They wanted the travel restrictions gone. They wanted, um, you know, a more equidistant or equilateral uh, approach on pandemic management. None of that happened. There seemed to still be this idea of America first in the water. Um, and so the, the interpretation of, of foreign policy for the middle class, which on the face of it, I think in the intent of the CFR report and the way that Jake Sullivan and, and, his, and his team for that report saw it, uh, you know, and that reality is true that we have to make a foreign policy everywhere in the West that our, our electorates understand, but that that got really reinterpreted through German eyes by the fact that you know, you can switch out the presidents, but there seems to be an undergirding of American protectionism that will far outlive the Trump administration. And you can dress it up in other clothing, but that seems to be the American attitude toward the world. Um, and so then that sort of gets us. But then, of course, the Europeans got the reality shock and have gotten the reality shock uh, yet again of the of the Russia crisis to speak with the German foreign minister. Uh, not that she doesn't. She made it explicitly clear at the MSC that we don't have a Ukraine crisis, we have a Russia crisis, um, that it was clear that when it came to this relationship, the traditional historic relationship between these two powers, the United States and uh, the erstwhile Soviet Union, now Russia, that in many regards, Europe was flyover country, that Vladimir Putin had really no deep interest in speaking to European partners. Uh, and that what Europeans put on the table, even though that they're they're going to be the primary bearers of, of sanctions, the, you remember the internal discussions on whether SWIFT could be part of, 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 the, of the toolkit, whether Nord Stream 2 could be part of the diplomatic toolkit, et cetera, that, that, we could, that Germany was at a leeway to actively debate that, oddly, because at the end of the day, the United States would decide and we would have to fall into line quote unquote. Um, and so there's been sort of an, an interesting dynamic in the internal political debate here on whether or not there's actually a role to play. There's tools to bring to the table here. Or, you know, when it when push comes to shove, we're completely beholden to American power. We need American power because all the ideas about European sovereignty, capacity to act, um, anything with open, you know, sort of open source ideas behind it are really things that gird up against two things, timing and the potential for simultaneity of, of, of threats. And Charlie mentioned that at the very end of his comments, this idea that if China uh, again steps up um, uh, now to uses this moment in a way that it could uh, further uh, have an impact on the Europeans at the same time as uh, as this crisis is underway. Um, I think many Germans very nervous about the Russia Chinese deal signed around the Olympics, and then of course the deal before. Um, and that's why, by the way, um, again, German China policy changed not because of the United States, but because of course China has radically changed its behavior over the past year. So that there is a realism now uh, in the German political discourse, which is to say, look, at the end of the day, equidistance is never going to be a functional policy, nor should it ever be. And that's now my editorializing because um, democracies need to hang together to the bitter end. 
Um, and secondly, it's just not an economic option. It's not a political option. But again, where we entered the relationship with Joe Biden, with the German public, the German business elite, and the German political elite, thinking that there would be a rebalancing of that relationship, the real realities of last couple of weeks and months certainly have underlined that you know there's quite a bit of distance and so much of the very fundamental tenets of how this transatlantic relationship came into being big you know big brother united states is still what europe needs because fundamentally it has missed at every opportunity a chance to fundamentally change that balance in terms of defense, in terms of economics, and in terms of deepening European integration. And I say this as an alumna of the European Institute <laughs> at the London School of Economics with great pain. Um, it has not, in fact, uh, realized the ambitions uh, that it had. And so here we find ourselves back in the articulated great power competition. And no matter how Germany would like to spar as the middling power, it can do many things, but it can't do the ultimate. Wow, thank you very much. That's a terrific kind of summary of, of like um, Germany's dilemma um, in, in dealing with the United States. Um, and I wanna also come back at some point, you raised the, the point about um, protectionism or nationalism being kind of part of the American DNA now. And that, you know, it can be dressed up in different ways, but that that seems to be kind of a constant um, going forward, and I think that's that's something we want to take up um, because it is very clear that the Biden administration has not pushed on any kind of programmatic trade liberalization uh, initiatives at all, and has made it very clear that it won't until significant domestic legislation is passed in the United States, and of course that's been held up. Um, Gideon. Great to have you back on the platform too. So one of the many things, uh, other things that struck me um, about the back and forth between Putin and Biden, and this kind of takes us back to a, a point that Charlie raised is, is, um, is really how different the narrative about Biden as commander and chief is from let's say last summer in the you know in the wake of the botched withdrawal from from Afghanistan. I mean, it's almost as if we're talking about two different people here and two different kind of approaches to working with allies. I mean, what what's going on? You're right. You've just finished a book on strongman. Now I know that Biden doesn't quite fit into that category but you've been thinking a lot about leaders. And is it, is it something about, you know, this is his, in a sense, kind of Biden's home turf working on Europe, um, or is it uh, they learned a, a really a, a lesson from the way that they dealt with Afghanistan? Thoughts on this and Biden's foreign policy in general? Thanks, Peter, and, and thanks for ha having me. Um... Yeah, I mean, look, I, I think that they did learn many painful lessons from Afghanistan um, and uh, feel that they, they need to show that they're handling this better uh, broadly, but also by working with allies. But before I get to the whole question of leadership, and, and, and uh, you, you kindly alluded to my book and all this, 
I mean, I think, you know, having just come back from the Munich Security Conference, I'd like to try and give you a sense of the drama of the moment and what we're facing, because I think it's defining for Biden, it's defining for his leadership, it's defining for the West. Mm-hmm. It was, you know, it's a very shocking moment. I think the world can be turned on its head, you know, in the next week, to be honest. And, you know, however bleak the comments these people are making in public, I can assure you it's worse in private. Um, and I did have the chance in Munich to, to catch up with some of the, the Biden team, you know, well, Kamala Harris's team were there, Blinken's team were there. There were a lot of congressional people. Um, and also the British, who are sharing intelligence quite intensively with the Americans, as indeed are the Australians, the whole Five Eyes thing. You know, we talked a lot about Europe, but one of the things that's really striking, you know, is that the division and opinion uh, in the Western Alliance now seems to be between the Anglophone world, who are convinced by their own intelligence that we're facing, you know, a, a very brutal war quite soon, and the Europeans who are still more sceptical about it, although I think their scepticism is fading in the uh, face of evidence on the ground. So, um, yeah, I mean, if Vladimir Putin does indeed, as the Americans have believed for really since December, uh, invade Ukraine and uh, go big, as the phrase is, uh, that he doesn't just bite off Donetsk and Luhansk, but invades from Belarus direct to Ukraine and does it, um, again, I think the central scenario these people believe in, this isn't just for public consumption unless they're the world's best actors. They, they believe that he's going to um, unleash full military force on Ukraine quite soon um, and overthrow the government, install a puppet government, kill a lot of people. Some of the figures I heard were 50,000 dead. Um, you know, so this is um, a terrible crisis. Uh, now, the Biden team feel that they've done this better than they did Afghanistan in the sense that, um, you know, they will accept that obviously Afghanistan at the end, the end phase was a mess. Um, but I think that having felt that it was going to probably going to end this way since December, they've been really trying to divert Putin off the course by first, like, firstly by deterring threatening with sanctions, et cetera, et cetera, and then also offering what they call off-ramps, you know, diplomatic initiatives without conceding basic points uh, on NATO. And Charlie suggested maybe we should have been more flexible on NATO, but I think probably the time for that is past now. Um, Then they think that Putin made his decision last week um, to go for it. And as one of the Americans put it to me, we're now in an even more difficult situation because we're not just trying to prevent him taking the worst option. He's chosen the worst option, and we've now got to try and change a decision that's already been taken. Now, it could be the case that the intelligence is wrong. I mean, we know intelligence failures have happened before. Um, And in fact, some of the policymakers were saying that when they first got these very dark assessments, they were saying to themselves, maybe is the intelligence community overcorrecting for their failure in Afghanistan, for their failure and, and really choosing the darkest scenario, almost as a self-protective mechanism. But they, 
you know, events basically have played out in the way that the, the intelligence suggested. And as actually one of the Europeans put it to me, it's like we were given the film script in, 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 in the beginning of the year and we can see it being acted out in every detail. Um, so they're, they're um, yeah, they're very, uh, I don't know, anxious is the word, but not, not happy about the situation they're facing. Um, there's, so, but I, I don't want to, um, there's so much to say. So let me just finish off with a couple of broad thoughts about what it means for Biden's project and his leadership, and then um, how, how it's likely to play out. Look, Biden, when he came in, I think I've got a little quote in front of me where he said in his first press conference, this is a battle between the utility of democracies in the 21st century and autocracies. We've got to prove that democracy works. Um, and I think he, people are worried that if uh, Putin succeeds in overthrowing the government of Ukraine, then the battle for democracy is, gets a double setback, obviously overseas, you know, a flawed democracy is overthrown. Um, also in terms of prestige overseas, at least initially, this will be seen as a victory for Putin's kind of strongman style and as a defeat for the Western democracies. I think they're also worried about what it means for Biden's presidency at home. Um, the things that you alluded to, the battle against the resurgence of Trump and so on. Uh, Afghanistan, if you look at the opinion polls, it's really around the time of the fall of Kabul that Biden's ratings begin to dip. And although I think the Biden team genuinely believe they've handled this better, they've done everything they could, that they're worried that this will go down as another defeat for America and as another, you know, evidence for the Republicans to say, look, Biden is this weak president, uh, the rest of the world, Putin is walking all over him, this would never have happened if Trump was in power. There are reposts to all of those things. But the broad picture will be Biden's had two massive setbacks overseas. Oh, and by the way, the economy is going south and all the economic damage that's going to happen, uh, you know, if we have a kind of new Cold War with Russia, energy prices, et cetera, et cetera. So this is not good news for the project that Biden laid out at the beginning, which is to restore faith in liberal democracy. One just has to hope, there are two hopes. One is that we're wrong and there is a diplomatic bargain out there and this is just Putin playing hardball, maybe, but that's not what people think is gonna happen. And the second is that, um, you know, that Putin's actually the one who's making the mistake and that he ends up in this uh, terrible insurgency. It's as, as one of the um, non-Americans put it to me, it's Afghanistan 2.0. And he was referring to the Soviet Union in Afghanistan, not to the US. Uh, and that he eventually brings himself uh, down and uh, our side, the West, you know, um, looks better. But just to finish, I was talking about that scenario with one of the Americans in Munich and he said, yeah, you know, but it's not going to be any good for us to be right in 15 years' time or to win in 15 years' time. You know, we've got to win an election in 2024. Um, and if we look like Jimmy Carter now, we're in trouble. Yeah, they're in trouble if they end up looking like Jimmy Carter, that's for sure, uh, heading into um, to the midterms. Um, uh, they may be being too pessimistic uh, about how this will be coded by the American public. It's a little, you know, it's interesting. There's not a lot of polling information on this right now. You're absolutely right about his numbers went south with Afghanistan at just around the same time, though not just com 
for that reason. Anyway, thank you very much for those those comments. I, I actually want to, in a sense, kind of drill down a little bit with with Leslie. Leslie, welcome back to the LSE platform. It's great to have you here. I'm, I'm so glad you could join us. So some people are saying um, contra, or maybe just this is just to pick up the other side of it, that the Ukraine crisis has actually given U.S. foreign policy like a kind of um, I don't know like a, a new sense of purpose. Um, um, but we're still talking about an America that is, is deeply divided, whereas, you know, uh, Charlie alluded to this and, and, and Gideon did too, that there's really very little meaningful bipartisanship on, on anything, domestic or foreign, there's a foreign policy. There are some exceptions, but, very few and far between. I mean, is there a way that the Ukraine crisis changes the dynamic in the United States? Not in a way where, I don't know, somehow it uh, kind of fans the flames of division in the United States, but actually does the reverse. Thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. And, it, and it's been, it's certainly been very interesting to listen to everybody. I found myself getting a little bit depressed listening to Gideon, but <laughs> probably for, for a good reason and a great reality check, uh, as is always the case. I'm a huge fan. Um, so thank you for having me. You know, I guess it was funny, just I, I, you tipped me off, Peter. So I had a look back at Bruce Stokes's um, recent data that he's circulated on this. And American public attitudes on the question of Ukraine and what the US should do and, and how it's going. And the thing that struck me, obviously there are some divisions um, and there's a, you know, a strong percentage of Americans who believe that the president should take a tough line on Russia, although it's under 50% and it's greater amongst Democrats than Republicans. But the thing that struck me most about the data was the generational gap. And this is entirely unsurprising, um, I would argue, but deeply consequential. It's unsurprising because older people who you know, grew up with the Cold War as our dominant framework recognize the potential for Russia to be not just you know, a minor disruptor as we've sort of framed it in many of our debates in the last year, a declining power that's disruptive, but it's not China. And now suddenly it looks radically different. It actually looks like a really serious dis disruptor, not just a minor disruptor. And I think it's that older generation, which includes most of us on the panel, um, <laughs> uh, all of us on the panel, I dare say, um, who actually see this in quite stark terms, which doesn't mean that it's gonna unify the American public unless something very grave happens. and the. The, the time lag from which that affects, you know, Europe and that, especially that affects Ukraine and then affects Europe and affects the United, there's a lag there. So I, I suspect that this will not be the unifying factor that, that one might look to. Let me say just a couple of comments, I guess, in some ways in response to what's been said. I mean, I, you know, I was right there with Charlie. If you set your bar so low that your bar is how how were things during the Trump presidency, which frankly is you know the bar that we all had when Biden entered. Then the first year and the Biden presidency looked quite phenomenally good because on the questions that 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 Charlie set out, decency, you know, team player, all these sorts of things, it's hard to imagine wanting 
to have Donald Trump um, be the president of the United States through this particular crisis, for example. Um, but I guess I would argue a couple of things. One is, you know, by his own measures, President Biden has struggled to deliver. And some of that's certainly, you know, far beyond his control. Events have gotten in the way of shifting America's focus to, to the Indo-Pacific. The Indo-Pacific strategy was released, what, 10 days ago? Did anybody notice? I actually thought it was a very intelligent document that the line I appreciated most was they said very clearly, we are not seeking to change China. We are seeking to change the context in which China operates. And then it proceeded to talk about how it would do that. I, I, I actually think it's a very intelligent document, but it, it has had no impact. And that I think is emblematic of the fact that the world is not allowing um, the Biden presidency to deliver on the shift of focus. And we all know this, not for want of trying with one exception, which is that for want of trying on the economic front, and here I think we can actually attribute responsibility by way of a shortcoming to the administration, partly because it's playing to the domestic crowd, which is so anti-free trade and any other number of things, but, but partly just it's been slow. And again, it's in that US Indo-Pacific strategy. We're gonna, have a, we're gonna have a strategy, but we don't have it yet. And I think the world is sort of waiting for that. So a combination of um, events have gotten in the way, but also perhaps a lack of uh, drive to really push through. Um, the, the, a word on Afghanistan, I think it really highlighted what other people have already said, especially Catherine, that um, there's a sense in Europe and in the UK, less in the UK, because they're so distracted by their own issues, um, that this isn't an administration that's seeking to cooperate and genuinely consult that it's more about uh, informing than consulting. And I was really struck in August at how radically different the conversation seemed to be on either side of the Atlantic. So perhaps, you know, Ukraine brings not the American people together, but maybe it actually does bring Europe together. It stifles the conversations about strategic autonomy and generates a degree of alignment around what is a, a really very serious and potentially very grave and life-altering conflict, we shall see. Um, but the final thing I wanted to say is on this, this sort of bucket of democracy. And you know, to me, the, the number one promise of the Biden administration, the aspiration, the tallest order that they set for themselves was to build unity uh, in the United States. And this is where, you know, again, talk about an incredibly difficult thing to do. Um, but this is where I think that there just hasn't been much progress. In fact, if anything, I think it's potentially gotten worse in part um, because of the internal challenges within the Democratic Party, in part because of the challenges within the Republican Party. But I think in part because the administration, whether it's its own fault or it's dealing with an America that is simply deeply polarized and anti-elitist, uh, continues to feel outside the beltway. Um, even by those who should be broadly and, and actually robustly supportive of the president. This isn't a president. This is a president that should have been able, I think, to bring many Americans into the fold, but I haven't got a sense that that's actually happening, even in areas where you would have expected him to hit the ball out of the park. And I think that's partly because of, or even largely because of the divisions in his own party that call on him to play to the progressive wing and in doing so make it very, very difficult to deliver to uh, that sort of 
mid-Pennsylvania, mid-Delaware white American um, public that so desperately wants to be included and, and simply isn't. Um, so I think that the, the challenge to democracy, you know, on pretty much every single level remains incredibly strong at home. The global context uh, isn't helping. But the upside is that the current crisis will at least bring together the core of Western democracies in a way that they really weren't for the first year, and certainly not between August, Afghanistan, and, and the few months that, that followed. Great, thank you, um, Leslie. Um, that's terrific. Well, look, we're, we're at a point here. We've, we've, this is the end of the kind of formal presentations. Uh, before turning to questions, um, I wanna welcome uh, folks to the, on the platform from Canada, Japan, Mexico, Hungary, Finland, France, South Korea, Turkey, the United States, and Myanmar. So, you know, you're on the LSE platform. Uh, it's got incredible reach. Um, I have questions, but I can already see that there's uh, close to 20 questions already in the Q&A function. Um, I'm gonna pick up a few of these questions. I think I'm gonna, and I'll, I'll take a three at a time covering different, um, you know, uh, topics. One of them, is actually um, directed to you, Catherine, but I think this is kind of open hunting season here. This is from Animesh Gashol, who is a, an LSE alum. Why is it that Europe, with an economy 10 times the size of Russia um, and a combined defense budget, which is much greater, seems helpless against Russia without American support? Um, a second question um, in a way has to do with the potential bargain that might be out there. So this is with respect to the Ukraine, but I think more broadly also, and it comes from um, an MSCIR student, Callie Lewis. She asked, to what extent do you think a Kennan-like spheres of influence model is the most likely outcome of the current situation. Is this something that should be embraced or rejected? Charlie, you've written about this subject uh, elsewhere. So this has got, and, and, uh, and so has Gideon. So I think this has got, you know, your names on it. It'd be good to hear what you have to say. And I wanna turn to Matt Carr, who's an IR student, an MSCIR student, um, asked a question about China. Um, and polls have shown that many Americans, and it's not just true of Americans, it's true of many Europeans as well, support a tougher, and, and Germans, uh, I would add, support a tougher stance towards China. Could this somehow provide a basis for Biden to negotiate across the aisle on foreign policy and perhaps start to restore the vital center more generally. And I, I think I'd, I'd like to maybe add a little bit to Matt's question and just kind of, um, you know, um, sharpen it. Um, I mean, one of the things, maybe this is like a fourth question, but it's on this is, um, Putin seems to be soaking up all the geopolitical oxygen right now. And, you know, as Leslie mentioned a couple of weeks ago, Biden's team rolled out the strategy towards China. 
and Blinken followed the following week, you know, but nobody knew that he was in, in Asia visiting capitals and so forth. You couldn't find that on the front page of any newspaper. I'm pretty sure you could go back and check that. Um, it really was below the fold at any rate. And, um, and, and one wonders, you know, if, I mean, is China kind of in the catbird seat here? You know, that it's watching Mr. Putin do all the heavy lifting with respect to Western democracies and Biden have to invest all of his time dealing with Putin where he really wants to focus on the other side, you know, in East Asia. That's very clear. That's been clear from the beginning of the administration. Hi, I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ asks social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question, like, why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or, can we afford the super-rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the event. Um, so three different questions. One about Europe and its capacity to act with or you know, without the United States. How come no more action there? The possibility of a spheres of influence kind of arrangement, good or bad. Um, with respect to, uh, to Russia and perhaps China. Um, and the question of whether or not China could serve as a kind of, I don't know, glue or bind, it could somehow bind, serve a function, bringing kind of more bipartisanship, um, bringing Americans closer together and whether that would be a good thing. I mean, the question doesn't ask that, but I think that's a a question in and of itself on the normative side, whether that would be a positive outcome, because of course the flip side of that is that the relationship with China would become more acrimonious, probably. Who wants to jump in? Charlie, you want to start with the spheres of influence question? No, not really, but I'll, I'll do it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> um, <clears throat> you know, I, I, think, I think that we, we live in a world right now where there is an inescapable tension between kind of a, a, a more idealist rules-based international system and a realist international system based upon the distribution of power and a more traditional notion of national interest. And I see the the political disputes and the instability around us as, as, as in some ways a reflection of this contest. And as we go from a more multi, from a more unipolar world to a, a quasi bipolar multipolar world, I think this, in, this, this tension between a no spheres of influence rules-based order and, and um, a, a more realist order will grow. And in some ways, what I see happening right now in Ukraine is just that. It is a contest between uh, a more lofty notion of international order based on multilateralism and sovereignty and, uh, and a rules-based system with one in which national interest and realist balance of power 
impulses dictate. And, uh, you know, and, 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 and I think that we, the United States and our Western partners ought to be a little bit more realistic about the inescapable geopolitical imperatives that are out there. Uh, and it's worth keeping in mind that the United States, right, the big backer of this rules-based order has spent most of its history pushing everyone else out of its neighborhood. Right, going back to the beginning of this of the Republic, War of 1812, War Spanish-American War 1898. And ever since then, we've been basically going, going berserk anytime anyone shows up in our neighborhood. That suggests that we ought to be a little bit more cognizant and mindful of, of what the enlargement of NATO and us showing up in other parts of the world looks like from other, other capitals. Um, second, uh, second comment on, and, but, and, and you know, and, this, and, and to be honest, you know, personally speaking, I'm, I'm conflicted about that. I don't wanna go back to a world of spheres of influence. I'm hoping that we can find some middle ground but I also believe that there are inescapable geopolitical imperatives out there that we need to be mindful of and to take into consideration when we chart our, our grand strategy. Uh, on the second question, Peter, and you and I have discussed this at length, I believe that, that, the, that the center in American politics was a combination uh, or was the product of a combination of external threat and internal circumstance. And I don't believe that a Russian threat or a Chinese threat or a combined Sino-Russian threat will bring the United States back to its senses and repopulate the political center. And that's because I think the the sources of the depopulation of the center are more homegrown than they are international. They have to do with, with the plight of the middle class, with immigration, with identity politics, with declines in the, in the, in the real living standards of Americans. And so uh, number one, I don't think it's the solution to the problem. And number two, I don't think it's a good idea. And that's, and that's because I, I worry more about the United States being too competitive with China than I do about the United States being not sufficiently strong in pushing back against China. Right now, the default position in American politics is to, to sort of throw down the gauntlet. I, and as a commentator, I didn't even know that the Biden administration released a, a, an Indo-Pacific strategy. The first time mm -hmm. I heard about it is when Leslie mentioned it 20 minutes ago. Yeah. And I, you know, and, and I'm in Washington. <laughs> that just and you, and you read the newspaper, but that's because it well, hasn't been in the newspaper. You know, when, when you have three little kids, reading the newspaper is a luxury. Yeah. But um, it does, you know, I, I it does speak volumes that I wasn't aware of it. Uh, and so um, I think I think there's a lot of work to do on the on the China front. Right. And I do in some ways think that 
you know, that, that, that the sort of backstory to the, to the crisis in Ukraine is that it's stealing all the oxygen from China. Uh, and I did see a, a, a headline some, somewhere this morning that caught my eye, and that is that the Chinese aren't so happy about what Putin is doing. Right. Uh, and that's in part because the Russians are disruptors. They like chaos. They like to turn things upside down. The Chinese don't. They want a methodical ascent, but they don't want chaos. Catherine, do you want to jump in on the uh, and, and help us understand, better understand Europe in response to the question that was put to I'm us? Gonna, or, I'm going to try to do all three, uh, <laughs> okay. and hopefully, but briefly, um, and start, uh, start at that latter point and just uh, point out that Charlie is right, um, going back to the Munich Security Conference, where we had the Chinese foreign minister say just that, these sort mm -hmm. of uh, somewhat uh, interestingly balanced remarks about how he did not think that a conflict in Ukraine was a good thing right now, but sort of pointing the fingers seemingly in both directions. And yet, of course, the hedging that's going on, and this just speaks to how long-term the Chinese think, how short-term and tactical the Russians are, and to a certain degree, how confused the Europeans are in this very system uh, about what sort of the next uh, phase of action should be. But it's it's worthwhile rereading um, the speech of the Chinese foreign minister to get that sense of balance. You know, I, I want to pick up on, I'm not sure I agree with uh, Charlie's division between the idealist rules-based system and the realist vision of power, but let's let's use that for half a second. Um, because my worry there is really that, you know, everything that the idealist rules-based system uh, stands for uh, has been perverted, right? We haven't, we haven't managed to modernize it in the way that we need to, or should have been modernizing it. Uh, you know, it starts with the old uh, piece about UN Security Council reform, et cetera, et cetera, um, in the way that it actually needs to be um, undergirded to meet the transnational problems of our time. Um, Trump poked holes in it every Every which way possible into the basic principles. And so now we find ourselves to have the rhetoric that under, undergirded that whole system perverted by authoritarians to where we're sending peacekeepers into breakaway republics. And the Chinese have found other ways of, of using our own terminology against us. And it raises the, the identity questions in the on the continent really deeply because these are all powers who have grown up in the specter of this uh, multilateralist uh, institutional framework. Their whole wealth, their whole system, their whole self-understanding depends on that. And so there's like really quintessential questions behind that, because if the air can be sucked out of the room so quickly out of the multilateral international order, and these powers have not prepared on any level uh, really how to defend it um, in, a, in, a, in a deeper and cohesive sense. And this gets me to the question that was asked in, in, of me in the chat. Um, then, then we are facing really harsh realities that the large part of the European continental public has not woken up to. And so then I'm completely with Gideon. And I mean, I, I feel this here very much as, as a child who grew up uh, in the 80s in Germany, but on an American base, uh, at least in part, where, you know, the Cold War seemed very much around the corner. It is now seemingly here. And the Germans have yet to fully understand the degree to which this threat potential is really at their doorstep. It's closer for me to drive to Kiev now here than to my hometown of Wiesbaden. And somehow that hasn't 
finally uh, hit or computed beyond uh, the sacred walls of the Bayerische Hof this past weekend. Um, on that piece about uh, uh, Russia and these three things, well, there's three elements, history, defense, uh, and energy, in my mind. Um, uh, history... Go ahead, you're of course, up. the fact that 25 million Russians died at the hand of, of, of German soldiers uh, prevents German. Oh, I see this now. Am I on? Um, I'll just soldier on for just this last thought and then cap it there, Peter. Um, you know, that prevents a lot of party political uh, action here uh, and foresight and, and a capacity to really think more creatively about how one might address the other issues. Uh, and the other issue, for instance, is defense. And uh, for those of us who were still around on Sunday at the Munich Security Conference, uh, you had my good friend Natalie Tachi asking of all the European actors, well, aside from NATO, and we haven't even raised the specter of the question that, you know, speaking of democracies, Article 2 and the preamble of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, what happens in 2024 when the United States is not potentially as solid a democracy as it might be, and it starts to really put into question NATO going forward? But all that aside, uh, if the Europeans can't do their heavy lifting, uh, and you heard that from the French foreign minister and others to say, well, we're only getting started. Well, I'm sorry, at the London School of Economics, I had the uh, great honor to spend a lot of time with William Wallace, who will easily take you through in about two and a half minutes, the history of European defense cooperation, which is really, truly, actionably nowhere to be found. And that, I think, is, a, is an enormous issue. Then finally, I mean, I'm being very glib here, finally, energy. Uh, that whole piece has gotten so perverted and so truncated that I think it's fundamentally misunderstood on both sides of the Atlantic. And just to tell one more anecdote from Munich, Friedrich Merz, the um, head of the uh, CDU now, uh, was pushing hard on, on uh, Rob Portman and others in the transatlantic breakfast to say, well, if we have to, quote unquote, stop our energy deliveries from Russia, so do you. And so while we're in the middle of this enormous energy transition and the impacts that will have on our very economies, on our social systems, the fact that we are still overly dependent on petrostates and the way that petrostates seemingly run that wheel uh, just goes goes to show that, you know, we're not, and, and that's where the dangerous moment comes from, we're not yet sufficiently mature to pull these things together to really do uh, what has at least come up in the theoretical discourses that we would break uh, certain relations at the water's edge. Um, so I do think that, you know, uh, the continent is not as energy dependent on Russia as one might assume. But the fact that that has become the narrative that then underpins political decisions and the way that the political elite relates to the public makes moving on from that story extremely difficult. And it seems to at the very least have Germany in sort of a tightly bound box now, which again explains why you saw, you know, the somewhat schizophrenic dancing around in the coalition about what exactly would be on the table as the West negotiates, at least from the German side and supported by the German side. Great. Thank you. Uh, Leslie, do you have, um, you want to speak to any of these questions? Yeah, I'll just say something. Charlie's turned off his his image, but I, I want to say one thing on the um, spheres of influence uh, argument that he made. And and I, you know, clearly I, I recognize that he's conflicted, and I and I also recognize that that there are geopolitical realities that the world has to stand up to. And I recognize that the U.S. spent a lot of its history and continues to keep people out of its area. However, 
I think we've got to be really careful because, um, you know, they're not moral equivalents, right? The moral equivalency argument is in, in a sense embedded in the spheres of influence argument. I mean, I know that the spheres of influence is a geopolitical kind of way of thinking about the world, but there is a kind, it's either to put morals aside or it's moral equivalency. And it, it's not moral equivalent, right? If you're South Korea or you're Australia or you're Japan, it's not, it's not the, you know, the sphere of influence, whose is it, right? Is it China's or is it yours? Um, so I think that one has to be a little bit you know, careful about, because it, it sounds very nice to the international relations mind to say, actually, we just need to be careful, but it, I think it's much more complicated than that. That's all. Yeah, yeah. yeah, actually, this is building straight out of what Leslie was saying. I totally agree. I mean, uh, I mean, agree about being conflicted, but also that I think that spheres of influence basically are decided by leaders. I mean, classically, uh, wasn't it that Churchill and Roosevelt and Stalin literally scribbled down percentages on a beer mm -hmm. map, wherever yes. that happened to be a land, and said to decide? So they cut out any um, sort of a popular will, really. And I think Putin's problem is not really NATO, even though he may think it is. It's that people don't want to be part of the Russian sphere of influence, and you know that that is why the origins of the problem with Ukraine. You you had popular revolts against corrupt, pro-Russian-leaning pro uh, autocrats. Um, and in 2014, Yanukovych was forced out. And people were waving, actually, not the NATO flag, but the EU flag in the Maidan. Um, and, you know, Putin may, you know, in his rather sinister remarks last night, was suggesting that the, the Ukrainian government has no independence. It's manipulated by the US, by, by NATO, and so on. But I think that's because... He is incapable, really, of, of, of taking popular will seriously. But that's his problem, because popular will is, is, is what's going to trip him up in, the, in these areas. That's why the Baltic states weren't forced to join NATO by a more powerful Washington. They chose to join NATO because they were scared of, of Russia. And I don't think you can, it's very hard to take that factor out. Um, I think, however, it may tell us something about how things are going to proceed if Putin does attempt to overthrow the government of Ukraine, I think that what he will have in mind is a reversion to the order he grew up in, which is the Soviet order. And of course, they went into Hungary in 1956. They went to Hungary to, to Czechoslovakia in 68. And this would be a similar thing and, and attempting to set up a new sphere of influence, expand it. Um, I think it's probably a more dangerous situation, though, however, because because of the existence of the Warsaw Pact and NATO in the Cold War, you kind of knew whose sphere of influence was where. If he goes into Ukraine, we don't have that kind of certainty about the limit to his ambitions might be. Would he, does, is he at the back of his mind trying to recreate a lot of the old Warsaw Pact? Would that lead to uh, ambitions towards the Baltic states? If he succeeds in Ukraine, might he think you know, something that seems incredible now, like threatening an actual member of NATO. Well, you know, if NATO has been completely ineffectual, if the US has been discredited over Ukraine, then maybe things that currently seem unthinkable begin to be thinkable. Um, and so I think it's it's really a pretty dangerous situation we're entering. Sorry to be constantly a downer on this. Just a last thought uh, on the Chinese. I think it's a really interesting question. What do we make of Wang Yi's remarks, which Catherine pointed to at the MSC? Mm -hmm. And where do they stand on all this? My feeling is that 
although they may be a bit uneasy about uh, both the recklessness of Putin um, and the um, willingness to trample over the um, principles of sovereignty, it's quite hard to square with Chinese official rhetoric on this. I think they'll go with Russia because I think, you know, basically Russia and China have the same approach to the world in one fundamental way, which is they don't like the unipolar world. They don't like a world dominated by America. They do both want a sphere of influence, China in East Asia, Russia in Eastern Europe. Um, and that is such a powerful common sentiment that the Chinese will find a way of backing Russia. They're not, I think, going to side with the West at the UN, for example. At the very least, they'll abstain. Uh, they, will, they will provide Russia with common. I think the key thing will be, if we sanction Russia heavily, will China backfill? Will they give uh, Russia a way out of this um, economically? And then I think if they do, then you get into the business of secondary sanctions against China and the division of the world into two economic blocks again. Although there is a limit to what China can do because I mean, everything is, you know, you're, you're, these transactions happen in, 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 in dollars. dollars. And so, I mean, this is the fundamental, the card that the US has to play that it didn't play in, in 2014. And I think the question is whether or not it's actually gonna do it um, right now. Uh, or, you know, if, if he goes, if Putin goes beyond the Donbass and makes a move on Kiev and, and in a sense forces the administration's hand. But this issue of the connection with China, I wanna pursue it a little bit more because there's a lot of questions in the chat about it. And, um, and in particular, um, well, I mean, it, it's come up in, in two different ways, but we can put them together. One comes from Angela Mayer, who is uh, at the University of French Polynesia in Tahiti. And um, so is there a parallel to be drawn between Russia, Ukraine and China, Taiwan? And so th this is, you know, there's a lot of, I don't know what you heard at the Munich Security Conference and whether there was, chatter about this, but, you know, there's a lot of talk about this, that how the West, how Biden, how Germany, how, how countries deal with the situation in the Ukraine could very well affect calculations that, that Beijing makes. And, and just along those same lines, maybe, um, I, I want to just stick with this topic. Um, Maureen um, Gilbert, who's uh, another LSE alum, as to what extent is fear of appeasement helping or hindering Biden's foreign policy, especially with respect to Russia and, and China? So that if you think about that when Biden's acting in the European theater, he's also thinking about the potential implications in the Asian, the East Asian theater. Um, does anybody wanna kind of pick that up and, and explore it a little bit? Gideon, do you want to take a crack at that? Well, I'll take a quick, quick go. I think it's fundamental. I mean, I think that absolutely. Uh, that's uh, where, you know, Leslie was, uh, was saying uh, that they wanted to pivot to Asia and now Russia's back. But, chi but China's very much in the back of their mind. And I think there's this feeling that if the US is seen to be, inverted commas, defeated in Ukraine, uh, that will greenlight it for um, Xi to, to go after Taiwan. Now, I think it's a bit more complicated than that because Taiwan has, the, like, like Britain, has the benefit of being an island. And actually invading Taiwan would be, would be difficult. 
But I think there would be, you know, just as Afghanistan created a sense of weakness, which may have helped promote uh, the idea in Putin's mind that maybe he could do more. You know, if there's a second defeat for America, I think actually there'll be, there is a kind of public opinion, a strong nationalist public opinion in China, even if she was um, himself a little reserved about this, I think that the excitement would build in China. Mm. And so that maybe, you know, this is their moment and they could do something in, in Taiwan. So yeah, it's, it's, it's very um, fundamental. And I think that it's one of the reasons the Americans feel that they, they need to draw a line here. Other thoughts on this? I would say that it, you know, that yes, there will be kind of knock-on effects, but I think the cases are really quite different in the in the sense that in the case of the of Ukraine, the United States sort of says we have a commitment to bring the country into NATO and and defend it, but we don't. In fact, Biden says we're not going to send combat troops. And in the case of Taiwan, we say we don't have a commitment, but we actually do. Uh, and, and, and my guess is if there were an attack on Taiwan, we would, in fact, go to war uh, to, to, to defend the island. Uh, and so there, there is this kind of weird asymmetry be, be, between the two cases. Uh, but, but yeah, I mean, to this, to this broader question about Where's the sweet spot between being tough and not giving any ground and looking to be weak? That it, it's the key question, because I do think, you know, if you if you kind of read the tea leaves. Biden, Macron, Schultz, the key players, they're willing they're willing to to go the distance. Right. I mean, it was Macron who last week uttered the phrase Finlandization. Um, Zelensky himself last week said, well, maybe NATO membership is a dream. And so I think everybody is, uh, at least in the West, is kind of searching for some sort of formula that they can live with, that the Russians can live with. Until yesterday, I was more optimistic that that formula was out there. Now that Putin seems to be to be to be heading toward war, I'm I'm less certain. And one question that I ask myself, and I don't have a good answer to it, maybe maybe one of the, the four of you could opine on this, is if NATO membership for Ukraine were to were to come off the table, do we have a deal? Or is, is it basically a smokescreen? And Putin knows that he's already lost Ukraine because by invading in 2014, he created a unified Ukrainian identity against Russia. And so if he wants to pull Ukraine back into the motherland, he really only has one option. You got to go in, topple Zelensky, install a puppet, but that is a tall, tall order, right? I mean, that's a, that is a nightmare. And my read on Putin is that he takes risks, but that they are low cost. Invading and occupying Ukraine is high risk, high cost. Well, let's run with that just a little bit. I mean, just um, uh, 
maybe I'll just throw one thing out on this. It would seem to me that if there's a deal to be had there, Putin would have to be willing to accept some private insurance assurances from the US, Germany, and NATO about the Ukraine's future status. It strikes me as very unlikely that Washington is going to put that out there in a public way and completely reverse basically 30 years of policy. Um, that I think, you know, that that will easily be coded domestically in the United States as appeasement. Can I just um, jump in quickly uh, yeah. and then hand over? I think it's very unlikely that Putin would accept a private assurance. In fact, that's something that they constantly say we won't. Right. They say we got private insurances over NATO expansion. They want a treaty. But secondly, I actually think that, you know, to answer Charlie's question, I don't think ultimately this is about NATO. Because if you read uh, the essay that Putin wrote in July, which he more or less kind of read out a version of last night, he doesn't really accept Ukraine as an independent state. Um, this is about bringing Ukraine back into the uh, this Russian orbit. And NATO membership was just, in a way, just a symbol uh, of, of the permanence of their transition to the West. I'm, I'm going to turn this over to Leslie and to Catherine, but I'm going to push back on that just before I do. Because it seems to me the timing of Putin doing this is really important. Can you imagine Putin pulling this move while Donald Trump is president? I can't. I don't think it would happen. Donald Trump was taking a wrecking ball to NATO. He didn't need to. He could just watch NATO kind of, not exactly, yeah, self-implode that there was a lot of internal damage being done. With him out of the picture, you know, it seems to me that, that NATO is doing, dividing NATO is part of the, the, the strategy, is part of the logic behind what he's doing. Uh, otherwise, I think we would, because the, the issues about the Ukraine have been longstanding for him. So I'm not sure I totally buy that. It's yeah, yeah no, I, I take that qualification. Yeah. So anyway, uh, Leslie, Catherine, we've got, uh, so we've got about, uh, let's see, where are we? About, about eight minutes to work with, but this is a good topic to kind of round it out. Leslie. Yeah. I mean, I guess the thing I would add is I, I, I'm with Gideon. I don't think, I think it's not about NATO. I think NATO is, an, is a very important factor, but it wouldn't be enough. The only thing I wonder is whether part of the reason, not the only reason that he would like a public declaration that NATO membership is off the table is because it, it says, it would say to the people in Ukraine, look, the West has abandoned you. I'm your friend, right? right? They've publicly renounced any opportunity for you to ever join NATO. They've abandoned you. And, you know, it, it, I just think it makes his case a little bit easier in the face of an uphill battle of Ukraine that, that doesn't really want uh, Russia to be its its author. Um, so, yeah, I... Uh, and in terms of, I guess, the, the question of Taiwan, which I think is, you know, a lot of people, this, this question keeps coming up and I tend to see them, I'm with Charlie in this, I see them as very different situations. I think the U.S. response would be very different. I think the economics of it, the economic costs for the U.S. and for the global economy are radically different. And that would draw a very different response for that single reason. Um, and... I, I tend to be on the side of people who think that, you know, countries know when they're when they are considered to be part of the vital interests and the geoeconomic 
balance of what the U.S. and others need and want. And it's not just, I don't, you know, yes, the U.S. botched the withdrawal of Afghanistan, no doubt about it. But does that make it look weak in terms of Russia or Taiwan? I, I think that's, it's a very strange argument that people love to make, especially on the front pages of many newspapers. But I don't, I don't see it. Sorry, that wasn't a comment about the FT excluded. I don't see it. How well, does it look for, from Berlin? I'll take it. I'll take it in reverse, which is to say that I I was nodding uh, heavily along there with Leslie because I do think that uh, it's it's it, there are cr- critical differences if you have fifty four percent of uh, you know current semiconductor chips of a certain size being manufactured by TCMS. There's you know and until we get all until we get the Chips Act on the road and God knows what other strategies we currently have developed on town are going to bring semi uh, semiconductor building quote unquote back home. Um, I. I completely agree with this idea that the United States has much more at stake in the Taiwan question than it does in the Ukraine question. And this, and I mean, to Leslie's exact point, this is this was the core of Zelensky's piece, uh, speech on at the Munich Security Conference. This sort of moral appeal. Leslie's absolutely right. Nations know when when you know when when they're really in play or when they're not in play. And the fact, I mean, this was heavily dis- disputed and discussed. The Scholz quote to say. But, you know, can we now be honest? We're not actually talking about Ukraine membership in the European Union or Ukrainian membership in NATO. So can we get back to actually dealing with sort of with the facts at hand? And that, of course, flies in the face of this long held American narrative. I do think that, again, you know, we are at a dangerous moment uh, with respect to Article 5, because depending on how far um, Putin drives this quote unquote into the country, then we could see some skirmishes at European borders. And I mean, there, there is a suction, suction dynamic here that could be very dangerous and that we should not lose sight of. I'll add one more point on the Taiwan Ukraine piece, and that is domestic audience. And, and we talked about, uh, Bruce Stokes's, um, uh, opinion polls, but, you know, it's been so frightening for me now as an American or half American, um, back in Europe to see, um, how, how Republican mainstream media has folded into the Putin logic. They're continuing that Trump, Trump, uh, narrative, you know, that is really, um, disheartening and frightening. And, but, but you see a whole different set of arguments being made on the China piece. So how that plays out, uh, in the domestic, uh, discussion, I think, given that this is fundamentally a discussion about internal, uh, or like the way that the United States relates to the world, that's something that we have to keep a close eye on. And that's fundamentally different than, than what we saw, uh, during, during, the Cold War. So, I mean, that's something that I, I would be concerned with, and that would very much divide those two cases. Well, so, um, you know, just on that, I, I think I, I saw a poll in the U.S. It must have been, I think it was yesterday, that Putin, among Republicans, Putin's more popular than Biden. So, <laughs> from a reputable organization. So, um We've come a long ways, um, you know. Um, I suppose just we've got just a few minutes left here. Peter, um, I, I have to dash off to class, so I'm going to bow out. Charlie, great to have you on the platform. Thanks so much for being with us. Wonderful to see everyone. See you soon. Sure. Bye. So I suppose just a, a final thought maybe from from all of you kind of on 
on the possibility of a diplomatic settlement, you know, I mean, are you just, you see, I mean, this is kind of just going back to the question, but maybe just a final thought about where we are and, and where you kind of come down, whether you think that there's, there's potentially something to be had there, or you're just very, very pessimistic at this point. I can start with that. I'm very, very pessimistic. I don't think that there's a settlement, you know, there might be a notional settlement settlement that that is violent. You're talking about Ukraine. That will be violated. Uh, I think that this is going to be with us for a, an extremely long time, that it might ebb and flow. Um, and the only situation and context under which it isn't with us for a long time is one where Putin basically takes control of Ukraine and we let him. Uh, but absent that, I think this is just with us for the in, inevitable, for indefinite future. And uh, I'll let Gideon have the last word because he by far has the, the longest eyesight. Um, uh, <laughs> as we all know, I'm reading his books and his columns, so that'll add value to this discussion. I, I'm, I'm with Leslie. Look, I, I said yesterday to a group of, of aspiring uh, young international diplomats at the Foreign Office that, you know, this is far more um, heart-wrenching and frightening than anything that I sort of feel I, I lived through in, in the 80s, and because this is so much more real and uh, so much more long term, I think Leslie pointed out, I think what the Germans are ill prepared or what core Europe again is also core, um, poorly prepared for is what Wolfgang Ischinger has pointed out since the very beginning, we're going to have a Ukrainian migrant wave here sooner than you think because of the way that um, the regulations are in Ukrainians. Now that is, you know, that was the, the beginning of, of, if you will, some parts of the Euromaidan is that the Ukrainians have freedom uh, of movement and can come here and will um, uh, up to a certain degree. And that will bring this whole situation home, I think, for, for Europeans, uh, quote unquote, in the Western European heartland and in, in a terrible way. And I think um, that's what a lot of the European uh, foreign ministers were trying to do at the stage of um, in Munich. Both Zelensky and Annalena Baerbock began their um, speeches by talking about children. Um, so I think these realities of what war in the 21st century means uh, is going to become very, very clear very, very quickly. And unless Putin realizes that he is miscalculated fundamentally, um, I'm not sure that any pieces of paper, uh, at least in this precarious moment, uh, are going to really roll, roll back the brink um, in, in the near term. And that's what makes this, certainly in my lifetime, uh, the most frightening moment that I have experienced. Gideon, you get the last word and you have one minute. Okay, okay. well, I'm, I'm, I'm with Catherine and Leslie. I don't think there'll be a diplomatic settlement. We, we could all be wrong. And even the people who are pushing, you know, its war line uh, have a little hope that, they'll be, that they will be proved wrong. But I, I think that it's, uh, you know, the central scenario, I'm afraid, is a, an overthrow of the Ukraine, Ukrainian government. Where are we after that? I think the next big debate in the West will be whether we try to stoke an insurgency in Ukraine. Uh, frankly, for Western foreign policymakers are already talking about that, but it'll be deeply controversial and dangerous with risk creating Syria on the borders of Europe. On the other hand, there'll be these arguments, well, would you have refused to support the French resistance? But I think that's the, uh, that's the territory we might be in quite soon, along with handling a major recession in the West. And as you pointed out, large parts of our own population who are actually quite sympathetic to Putin. Folks, we're going to leave it there. It's been a great pleasure to have the opportunity to listen to our panelists today. Catherine, um, Gideon, and Leslie, many thanks to you for taking the time to 
share your thoughts about um, Biden and the Ukraine. It's great to have you on the platform. Folks, um, you know, stay safe from all of us at the uh, Phelan U.S. Center. We'll look forward to seeing you on another occasion. Stay healthy, stay safe. Bye now. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favorite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.